By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. I think I was known as for being quite a, an odd guy at uni anyway and just doing things because they were funny. And then I just got so lucky one day where I walked past Zach Alsop on the streets, who was yeah. a fellow YouTuber at the time, who had about 30,000 subscribers at the time. And I, I said to him, look, mate, if you if you ever need a cameraman for anything, let me know. But I said to Zach, oh yeah, I make videos as well. I've got like 18 million views on my videos. And he weirdly said, yeah, actually, well, we're filming something tomorrow. Do you want to come and help film? So I helped film there. And then he had this idea to, to kind of break me into London Fashion Week, dressed up as a model. And we did that. And then that was just kind of like, boom just went stratospheric. I don't think I do enough to combat burnouts. I do therapy. That was one of the first things that I bought with some YouTube money was like therapy. But then it all boils down to like ideas of like self-esteem. I kind of got to a kind of a, a, an impasse where I know the things that make me feel bad when it comes to like negative thoughts when it comes to video making and like have big numbers. But the goalposts just move daily. I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but Hey friends, welcome back to Deep Dive, the weekly podcast where every week it is my immense privilege to sit down with academics and authors and entrepreneurs and creators and other inspiring people and we find out how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools we can learn from them to help live our own best lives. Now, what you're about to hear is an interview that I've just done with Max Fosch. Max is a YouTuber and stand-up comedian. You might have seen a video which now has 30 million views where he and our friends Zach and Jay, they faked him as a model to the top of London Fashion Week wearing like a garbage bag or something like that. Recently, he's also gone viral for playing a prank where he convinced people landing at Gatwick Airport that they were landing at Luton Airport instead. He famously ran for mayor of London a couple of years ago. He has gotten an, an official presidential pardon for a crime that he committed in 2009. And he seems to have built a career off the back of being an internet prankster kind of vibe. Anyway, this is a sick conversation. We talk about how he became disillusioned with the world of corporations and like big corporate and a real job. And we talk about his journey through university, how getting involved in student radio ultimately led to him doing silly things on the internet and making silly videos now to the point where his YouTube channel is at nearly 1.5 million subscribers. He's building his own team. He's just done a whole stand-up proper show thing at the Edinburgh Fringe and is performing at the London Palladium Theatre, which is this huge venue in about two months. And me and the team are going to be getting tickets to that. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Max Fosch. By the way, just to flag, um, we actually had a bit of an audio issue for the first five or so minutes of this episode. We've kept him in because it's top banter and Max is like really freaking funny and like, yeah, but please excuse the audio for the first five minutes. It gets really good beyond that point. You've been described as lots and lots of things. I'm really interested to know what you're going to describe me as because is it going to be prankster? Because that's normally the number one that people go for. Oh, so I was, I was going to ask you how you describe yourself, but I, the line from the video where I first discovered you was uh, Zach and Jay's Fashion Week one, unsurprisingly. Yes. 30 million views, we faked a model, fake model to the top of London Fashion Week. Yeah. They described you as, we need a confident, unfashionable, blank canvas of a man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was. So you feel like that's a reasonable. I think that's probably yeah, that's probably quite fair from from Zappa J. Um, yeah, I think I think I get a lot of I get a lot of pranks still, which I don't massively love. Um, 
I, I, I get a lot of what do you do? That's mainly from my like close family and friends. A lot of my family and friends still think I make radio. Like, I still think I do radio because I started off like being a radio presenter. Yeah, one of your like internet bios says broadcaster before YouTuber. When we were doing our research, it was like, Max Bosch is a broadcaster. That, is he a broadcaster? I don't, yeah, I just don't think that kind of mainstream know what they, they just kind of panic when they're like, okay, what, what do we call this guy? So uh, I think content creator is probably the, uh, the best, the best best fitting one yeah so th- your your story is a, a somewhat circuitous and like interesting so i wonder if we can just sort of stop stop there um sure. you, from my understanding about 10 years ago 2013 you started an internship and that started your hatred of the corporate world yes well, what was going on there yeah i i, I kind of grew up um, in in a very kind of a, a privileged bubble uh, i went to a school called harrow school which is a very well-known and posh private school here in the uk and I, I don't want to. I don't want to say. I don't want to kind of like badmouth the school. Um, and so they, they, they. This wasn't something that was actively being kind of pushed. But there was a feeling I felt of like, right, you go into certain avenues in a career. So whether that's law or finance or medicine, and finance definitely was one of the big ones. And my father worked in insurance. And so when I was seventeen, I got the kind of very nepotistic opportunity to to go and, and sit and just. I observe, which I find is a really interesting way of like uh, prefacing a, an internship, of going to observe. Like you're 17, you have no idea what's going on. I sat there for a week and I thought, is this it? Is is this, are we, are we all aware that this is the thing that everyone is so excited about? And I kind of got very kind of disenfranchised with the idea that I was going to go and work in the city or work in, in finance. So like I've, I've never worked a corporate job. What, no. what was it like? What? It was everyone, so you get in, uh, you don't really, how's, how's your evening? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. You're nice. Uh, tap, tap, tap for two hours. Don't say anything. One stale bit of banter gets flown around about <laughs> Greg that's come in 30 minutes late with some ketchup down his top. Oh, big breakfast, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> and then tap, tap, tap. And I was then sent, I was then sent to fetch the pies at lunch. And that was my favorite part of the day. So that's when I got to actively do something. I got really excited to go get the pies. Um, and came back and then some more stale banter about Greg <laughs> and then and then after work drinks where people would get uh, pissed and, and they'd go home. Like, I'd just like to preface, this isn't the entire uh, existence of people who live in, in the corporate world. This was just my uh, experience in the week that I was working there at 17. And that's, I kind of realised as much more, I, I wanted something that was much more creatively fulfilling. Um, and so when I went to university, I, I changed my course within the first kind of three or four months from economics and finance to English literature. Mm. And this is kind of the, one of the first times I, I realized I was probably quite good at, at blagging something because I hadn't done English at A-level. And so oh. I walked into the English school and said, hi, I'd like to do your degree, please. And they said, okay, what did you earn your English A-level? I said, oh, I didn't do it. And they said, okay, well, then we can't offer you a, 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 <laughs> a place in the English school. And I remember I said, for some reason, but what if I get a two one in my first year in economics? That p- surely proves that I'm a good student. So I'd be a, I'd be valued to your to your um, school. I think she was so taken aback to the head of English that she just said, "Yeah, okay, fine, <laughs> deal." And I ended up getting a two one in my first year of economics, and so then that made me do English literature. And so that was suddenly I was terrible. I was terrible in English literature, but it meant I was suddenly doing things that were slightly more creative. Okay. So at like age 19, you sort of find your way into English literature yeah. as a degree. Yeah. What happens next in the, in the maths? Box? So in, I was then just, tr- I was just joining societies. I was just like super interested and excited going from this very institutionalized world of Harrow where you get up 
at a certain time every day and you do this and then you do this and you do this into like meeting loads of different people from loads of different backgrounds and doing things that I never, I probably would have had the opportunity to do at Harrow, but it would have been very regimented. So I suddenly realized I could have my own radio show. Mm. Um, I joined the theatre society. I joined something called the 20 minute society, which is where they take your number and at any point throughout the week, they'll text you with an activity and you need to be there in 20 minutes. You have to drop everything you're doing. And I love this like spontaneous, like nature of, of, of university life. And so I was trying those different things and I understood, Oh, I really like entertaining people, whether that's on stage with the theater society or broadcasting or basically just being able to talk uninterrupted for, for an hour uh, on, on the radio. And so I did student radio, which then led me to hospital radio in Newcastle did that for three years, four years. Okay, the the internship. <laughs> yes. Um, what was it like? So I kind of, I arrived in this kind of corporate world at 17, uh, working in kind of, I think it was trading. And I kind of was, was really shocked at how this was it. This was the thing that we'd been kind of told. Okay, yeah. Well, not necessarily by the institutional or teachers but just by like peers and, and peers parents oh, yeah style. this is yeah. the pinnacle this is the pinnacle like you work in the city you get to work in lloyd's and go to go to bank station <laughs> in your in your pinstripe suit every day and get you get your prep subscription coffee here we go lads strap in and then afterwards you have a couple of pints at the pub and you have some very stale conversation um and so i kind of spent this week just being told to go and get pies and to just observe I remember I, I did actually get into a relatively confrontational conversation with somebody because someone said to me, you're not doing anything. This is an opportunity that so many people would kill to do. You're not concentrating on what we're doing. And I said, I don't know what you're doing. Just give me something to do. Um, and actually that did work because then I was tasked with putting together the newsletter that um, the people would come into the office uh, every morning and see the newsletter from the night before the markets in, in Asia. So I was getting in at like 3, 4 a.m., uh, to, to write up what had happened in the markets, send them to people's inboxes at 8 a.m., which they 100% sent straight to junk. Um, and then I got to leave at like two or three. But my point was, is that I, it was just not, it wasn't what I, I wasn't creatively fulfilled. And I thought, right, let's go and try and see if there's anything else. And so that when I went to university, I like really made sure that I'm going to get my head down and just try loads of different things. Nice. We were talking about student radio. Like what is student yeah. radio? Student radio is essentially a cupboard which has some foam on the walls, a microphone that doesn't work, and some students thinking that they are Nick Grimshaw for, for an hour of every single day. And the idea is that some, some student radios are better than others. Like some of them are really good. Sunderland have one called Spark that is genuinely its own FM station. So it broadcasts in Newcastle. Oh, sorry, in Sunderland. Oh. Um, whereas Newcastle, when I was there, it wasn't very good. Most of the time, the broadcast output just wasn't, it just wouldn't work. So you you wouldn't actually be broadcasting to anybody. <laughs> so you'd just be talking in this microphone. Yeah, exactly. In a, in a cupboard. In a cupboard. And you could listen to it online, I think, but often that wouldn't work. And I remember they had a real humbling experience. They had a listener counter. I found out there was a listener counter about two or three shows in. And I logged on and I saw there were three people listening. And I knew that two, I knew two of those people because I'd asked them and sent them the link. Okay. So, um, it was just an opportunity for me to try just being a radio presenter and mm. re like coming up with your own show and writing your own show. What are the segments? Okay. Getting some outside, outside broadcast stuff and Vox pops. And, um, and so I did that for about a year and I realized there's no, there's no progression here. You're just, I'm just coming in and doing the same thing every week. And so luckily I looked into and found hospital radio, which, um, in Newcastle, when I was there or still is the, the hospital station there called Radio Tyneside was really well run. 
and it was quite well funded. As in a radio station that's being broadcast in the hospital? Yes. So in hospitals, you have five buttons, um, I think, not in all hospitals, but a lot of them. So five buttons of radio stations. So there's Radio 1, Radio 4, Classic FM, Magic, and then normally the local station, which is hospital radio. Um, And so we had Radio Tyneside was broadcasting to the six hospitals, I think, in the Newcastle and Gateshead area. So we had quite like a large listener base. um, And (laughs) I guess the patients in beds who are choosing to not go for Radio 1 or Radio 4. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's quite slim pickings. It's kind of almost kind of this like hostage situation where you're almost forcing them to listen to you. But um, I, I worked there for three years and started on the overnight shift of like 2 a.m. till 4 a.m. and then worked my way up. And when I left my last year, I was doing the breakfast show. So what does that look like? Like what does your 2 to 4 a.m. shift and hospital radio look like? Luckily, a lot of it could be pre-recorded, So you could, uh, they would like you to do a few live shows. Um, but you could go in and rec- pre-record the entire thing. Um, and obviously there wouldn't be any in- interaction with the patients, but there kind of rarely was when you're in hospital. You're not exactly like picking up your phone and yeah. texting in to Radio Time <laughs> yeah, side, Especially so, like, at two in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's it just kind of like was any other radio station in the sense that it was the same software um, and you just kind of... you. So are you playing music or yeah, are you playing, like doing yeah, yeah. So just a minute? Or, you're playing music, yeah. you're playing music, which is easy listening music, which has been pre-programmed into the computer. But as I was there for longer, I realized that I could like swap things out and no one would really notice. Um, I then did get in trouble because I once had a few complaints because I played the song Highway to Hell um, <laughs> on hospital radio and I didn't need to get slacked. Um, but that, and what was what was funny is I was I was brought up not on the fact of the title and the content of the song broadcast hospital radio, but more the fact that it wasn't easy listening. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, you're playing music, you play like three or four tracks and then you get like a minute or 45 seconds of whatever you want to talk about and then repeat so over the course of two hours what is that? so it's it's been it's been years since i've listened to like a music radio station so what does what does the 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 stuff in between the songs like what what would you be saying it could be it could be anything genuinely like, like, oh we, it's a lovely day today yeah it's 204 I mean, in the morning here at tyneside yeah like, or normally that's when like segments are quite important or you kind of every hour you have to do one of those needs to be what's on in Newcastle this week. So mm. you get given like a little booklet. Okay. And then we see, okay, this person's playing at the time theater opera house and this person, this person. I don't know why you're like <laughs> broadcasting that. Cause these people are in hospital and they're not exactly <laughs> like keen to catch some live comedy. Yeah. Um, but then the rest of it is you can do whatever you like. So I did a lot of like Vox pop stuff. So I would go out. What does that mean? So I would Vox go and interview pop. people on the street. Oh, so previously I would go out, interview people, get some content, edit it together, yeah. and then put it in that segment. So it's like, so last week in Newcastle, I went out to go find out whether people thought there were more eyes or legs in the world. And then just go, oh, so I was kind of creating these like one minute long yeah. segments that I would then like put in. And I was obsessed with this idea. That's when I realized I want to go into radio. Like I want to be a radio presenter. Um, and I'd seen the career progression of all these kind of like my, my idols in the, in, the, in the radio world. They had all done hospital radio and then they'd won this award at the Hospital Broadcasting Association Awards, which is like, it's the big <laughs> night in the hospital radio calendar. Uh, um, and it was, I was up for best newcomer and I won best newcomer. Nice like, Here we go. Come on <laughs> offers. Let's see. Radio One, I'm, I'm free to, to do a show. And none came. I, I got one offer of a demo for BBC Radio Newcastle. And I remember it was kind of a moment where I realized that I wasn't going to be a radio presenter because I walked in and they, they were like, great, okay, Max, we're going to get you to do a demo. Um, fantastic. Okay, just talk about whatever you want as if, as if it's your own show. 
And all the other voices on BBC Radio Newcastle are like, welcome back to BBC Radio Newcastle, fantastic local radio for the Northeast. And we've got Max here this afternoon. I'm like, hello, nice to see you all. And it's safe to say that I didn't get the job um, of local radio in the Northeast with the, the plummiest accent. Um, so I, that's when I kind of realised, oh, I'm, I'm not really going to get a job in radio in the places that I would really like to get one. So I you just, didn't want Radio 4? No, I mean, I feel I like thought, you fit I, right in there. Yeah, yeah, maybe, but that, that uh, I was, I was looking after some, some excitement and to do like silly things and okay. to try. So the Archer's things. Omnibus is not your idea of fun. No. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. It will okay. be in a couple of years, but not, not, not at the age of like 21. Um, so that's when I just kind of started doing, I realized that I had loads of radio stuff, but I didn't have any like video stuff. And I was obsessed with this idea of getting an agent. I don't know why I thought once you get an agent, you are sorted, like mm. everything's okay. So I thought, okay, I need to make a show reel, but I don't have any video stuff. So I then thought, right, let's do just man on the street content, like interviewing people. I was in Newcastle, lots of students on nights out. Let's go chat to them. And I reached out to the TV society that was doing their own show. A TV society? Yeah. Was that a university society? A university okay. society that makes like television. Oh. And they were doing their own version of this called Big Market Banter. And I, I, apply, yeah, I applied to be, I applied to be a, a presenter on Big Market Banter, and they said, "No, sorry, we've got all our presenters at the moment." So I was like, "Well, great. I mean, it's in public. I can just go do it myself." So I filmed uh, five episodes of me just interviewing people on nights out and put them on Facebook, and people were tagging their mates or Ali or lol, can't believe that person said that. So funny or look where he is. And it kind of started doing quite well in the sense of like a thousand people in my university would see it. And I kind of, and people are like, oh, you should keep doing them. And I was like, okay, I guess I will. So then for my last year at university, I was just every single week, I would go out and make a new video on a different topic and go back, edit the video and, and put it up onto Facebook. Okay. And that's Lots of questions on this. Yeah. How did you have the confidence to just do this? Uh, was it the, just, was it like just the way you were born? Was it the private school? Was it like, what? I genuinely think it's everything like I am inherently a bit of a show off and very extroverted and I like talking to people and I was yeah I I just saw what it was being done so the big market bank I was watching this and I saw there were 18 minute long episodes these things and I remember the first minute would be Hi guys, welcome back to the show. Super excited. Um, Harry and Becky here. So today we're going to be going out and interviewing. And I I remember thinking, I'm so bored already. Um, And I was watching at the same time people like Kasim G um, Mm. uh, on YouTube um, over in the States. And like, this guy is really funny. I want to make my own stuff like this. And so it was mainly just uh, the answer of how do like, how do I have the confidence to do it? I just, I just kind of didn't really think anything of it. And I think that's probably very lucky, the upbringing I had. Harrow very much instilled this, like, confidence, this uh, assumed confidence in, in like, things that I did. And, like, because when you first get there, the first thing you have to do is, like, do a song in front of your whole boarding house. Oh. So, like, you're 13 and you have do to you sing, sing. a song? You have to sing a song in front of 80 boys. What song did you sing? So, it's the, 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 the house song. Oh. So, wow. yeah. And like one at a time. One at a time. Wow. <laughs> and so even if you can sing or if you can't sing, like you, you, I was constantly being thrown into situations like that mm. where eventually you get very, very comfortable with like uncomfortable situations and getting thrown outside of your comfort zone. And so I guess that's how I had that confidence. Okay. Yeah. And I was just a show off. Fair play. And so what, what sort of stuff were you asking these people on nights out? 
I was just copying what I'd seen on YouTube. So initially, I remember a video that I watched was one this this uh, Antipodean news channel um, did where they said Americans are not stupid. And they went out to America and asked some really easy general knowledge questions. And it went hugely viral. I remember watching this this video over and over again. God, this is amazing. It's my, like, basically my first Wait, video. Why did it go viral? Americans because are not it stupid? Because it was like, yeah. Was it like really basic questions? Yeah, it okay. was like, name a country beginning with you. Yeah. And it was like Yugoslavia. And they were like, what about the United States of America? Like, oh, God damn it. I hadn't thought of it. And so genuinely my first video was me just asking those questions. Yeah. Um, and so that's, and then and I was thinking of like concepts. One was called Cards Against Humanity, where I was just taking the questions, the prompts from Cards Against Humanity <laughs> and just getting answers from people on the street. Like it wasn't particularly uh, int- uh, difficult. Yeah. Um, Stuff. How how were you filming yourself? Did you have like a camera? What, what I had was a camera the setup? Person. Yeah. I was kind of like, this is how I kind of got my first employee. I go for Coco, like just friends of mine. It's like, does anyone want to go out and hold the camera with me for two hours on a night out? And then I found this girl called Coco and she was like keen. She's like, yeah, that sounds fun. So then she starts filming like all of the beginning uh, vid. I wasn't paying her. I wasn't yeah. getting paid. No one was getting paid, but it was just like, oh, we're at uni. This is a fun thing to do. Um, and so that's how I managed to get the first person involved. Um, yeah. Just a quick note from one of our sponsors and we'll get right back to the episode. And very excitingly, this episode is brought to you by Heights. Heights is a brain care smart supplement that I've actually been taking for the last 12 months, ever since I became friends with Dan Morisetto, who was the founder of Heights and who we had on the podcast in season one. And this season of the podcast, we're also featuring Dr. Tara Swart, who is a neuroscientist and psychiatrist. So what is Heights? Well, it's a brain care smart supplement. Basically, it is a supplement. You take two of them every morning like I do. It's like these two little capsules which have omega-3 oil in them and they've got a bunch of multivitamins as well. They have all of the details on the website. It, every single ingredient that they've got is super high quality. And the great thing is that just by taking two of these capsules every morning, like I do, you get all of the essential micronutrients that you need without having to deal with drinking sludge or anything fancy like that. So the great thing about Heights is that even if you don't have one of these absolutely perfect diets, at least you know you have your bases covered in terms of the micronutrients that you need. It's very easy to sign up. You just go to yourheights.com and then you sign up to the thing and it's a mail order. They get to you every month month or in three month packets. And if you use the coupon code ALI15, that's A-L-I-1-5 at checkout, then you'll get 15% off your first three months of subscription. I've been subscribed to this for the last 12 months. I also happen to be an investor in the company because I believe in the product and I love how they're fully evidence-based in absolutely everything they do. And if you're interested in the evidence base behind all like 20 different ingredients that they've got here, you can check them out on the website and that'll be linked in the video description and in the show notes. So thank you so much to Heights for sponsoring this episode. You and Coco going on nights out, yeah. sticking a microphone or like a phone in front of people yeah. and asking them questions and then mm-hmm. splicing it in together to like a four minute vid. Okay. And chuck it on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. And I did that for a year. Right. I, did, I did that for 18 months. Actually. And this is while you're doing hospital radio on the side. Yeah. So I still doing hospital radio. Is that a paid gig, by the way? Hospital radio? No. Oh. So that was all. So you were doing two to four AM shift hospital radio, just purely out of the goodness of your heart. Yeah. <laughs> because it was like, it was it was exciting. It was fun. Like yeah. you suddenly had this big studio and like buttons and you could basically say whatever you liked as long as you didn't play like <laughs> highway, highway to hell. To hell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was doing a lot of, and, and that, that, that formed so much of, it gave me such a big head start on what everything, what, what, what I now have on YouTube. And I always say to people who they're like, Oh, I want to start something. Mm. I was like, do it in a period of your life where the risk is so low. Like if it failed, if I didn't put out a video, it was fine because 
I could still go back to my friends and my family. Oh, I'm doing my degree, like I'm, but I'm doing this bit on the side. And so I had that 18 months where I was at uni or three years of radio where there was no pressure for it to do well or yep. succeed because I was, you know, yeah. I was also doing a degree. Yeah, I think that's one of the issues. Whenever the bar is high, is, is high and it's uh, like I often find people who have success in some area of life, either it's at uni or it's in their jobs or something. And then they want to start a YouTube channel. Now, all of a sudden, there's this like high pressure on it. Of, yeah. Like, oh, this has to succeed. Otherwise, I'm a failure. Otherwise, I suck, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And it needs, it needs to work instantly, which is not, not how YouTube works. I mean, you can, you can kind of hack the system and you can know retention tactics and all this kind of thing. But um, I think it takes time for you to understand what you're good at, mm. what you provide the best value in. It's you, it's educa- educating people. And mm. me, I think it's entertaining people. But if I decides to start an education channel or a, a kind of a, a wellness channel <laughs> i wouldn't know where the hell to start it would take me those two years to, to understand what yeah. i was doing okay so you're chucking these videos on facebook what sort of response are you getting from people in the in the uni scene i was just known as you're that interview guy okay yeah um and it was doing it was like it was doing quite well i mean um just within that sphere and um it was kind of giving me the the, the social clout that I thought was quite fun at the time. And if, if, as I was doing more of them, and if, if I was on the night out with my microphone and my camera, like I would have people who are really keen to, to yeah. chat and they want to be on the videos. And that was really, really cool to think that in like two or three months, I'd, I'd grown something that previously I was like begging people, oh, can, can you be on the, like, can you chat to me for two minutes? Yeah. So then suddenly people are like, oh, you're, you're that, that to... guy, there's yeah. that guy. Um, but I think I was known as for being quite a, quite a, an odd guy at uni anyway and just doing things because they were funny um i remember my f- my first year i realized in my halls of residence that my desk in my my room was the exact width of the lift um in the halls of residence okay. and so one evening at midnight me and my mates we didn't go out but we just moved my desk into the lift with my laptop my books my plant my lights and i would then like work but my back was to the to the, the entrance of the lift, and so like, the lift doors would open at one in the morning, and I'd turn around and be like, "What are you, what are you doing? Get out, get out of my room!" And so I got to I got known as like known as like lift boy for 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 a bit at uni. Um, but my point is, is that I was doing lots of these weird things because they were funny mm. and I enjoyed doing them, but I wasn't even filming them. Nice. Um, so yeah. That was my uni experience. And so your English degree was a bit of a side hustle oh, while you absolutely. were doing all this stuff. Absolutely. I, I, I did terribly badly in my English literature degree um, because I wasn't interested in, in, in writing about Chaucer. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about what, was the, what were the questions that were going to be tonight when I was going to ask students on nights out. Just a quick message from one of our sponsors and we'll get right back to the episode. And this episode is very kindly brought to you by Shortform. Shortform is the world's best service that summarizes books, but it's way more than just book summaries. They almost have a whole study guide for every book that they've got on the platform where they've got a one-page summary, and then they also have chapter-by-chapter breakdowns. And it's not just chapter-by-chapter breakdowns. Also, in between the chapter breakdowns, they have interactive exercises where you can engage more readily with the ideas in the book. Shortform covers non-fiction books from a bunch of different genres that you might be interested in. For example, they've got a load of stuff in the business world. So if, for example, you're an entrepreneur or you want to become an entrepreneur, that'll be great for you. They've got books in motivation. They've got books in education. They've got books in lifestyle and communication. Basically, any genre of like non-fiction, personal development self-helpy stuff that will help you level up your life. It's all there on Shortform. Shortform publishes new book guides and articles every week. And if you're a subscriber, then you get to vote on what book they cover next. And in fact, 
through that system, I have voted for various books that they've then turned into summaries. For example, one of the book guides I read recently was How to Take Smart Notes by Songki Arens, which is a book that I've read in its entirety a handful of times, but I've read the short form summary of the book even more than that because I've been using that to revisit the key lessons from the book, and that feeds into my own system for personal knowledge management. Anyway, if any of that sounds up your street and you would like to sign up to the world's best service that summarizes books, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive, and that will give you a completely free five-day trial, and you can try out the service to your heart's content. That link will also be in the video description and in the show notes. And thank you so much, Shortform, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so what happens next? You're doing hospital radio, you're doing the Facebook video version of interviews. Yeah. What's, what's, what happens next? I graduate uni. I went on a self-proclaimed tour with Street Smart, with this, this video series. Um, and I thought, okay, this is my one chance. I'm going to like go all or nothing. So yeah. for two weeks, I drove around the country with Coco. And every night we would go to a new university city. So let's say we started in Bristol. We'd film in Bristol yep. in the evening, go to bed. I'd wake up. I'd edit the Bristol video from the night before, uh, post it, drive to Exeter, film in Exeter, go to bed, edit Exeter. And so we did this for two weeks. So we did 14 cities in 14 days. And at this point, are you on YouTube or is it still Facebook? All on Facebook. Oh. Well, it, it was being posted on YouTube, but they were getting like 200 views okay. on, on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and I was posting these on Facebook and I, I, I really thought right after this two weeks, like things are going to blow up because mm. of the consistency of it all. And here we go. And I didn't, and I'd, I'd done this two weeks, killed myself, like hadn't lost a lot of money on petrol, and <laughs> that kind of thing. And I was a bit dejected and I didn't really know what the whole, I was like, what's the point of this? I kind of had this thing at university was working, but it hasn't really like pushed on. Mm. And I then worked in a pub for about three or four months. Mm. I was still making the videos. I was still kind of like still still going. And then I just got so lucky one day where I walked past Zach Alsop on the street, who was yeah. a fellow YouTuber at the time, who had about 30,000 subscribers at the time. Okay. And I watched him and oh. I was a fan of his. Okay. Yeah. And I, I said to him, look, mate, if you, if you ever need a cameraman for anything, let me know. And I had been lucky with my with my uh, Facebook videos that I'd been reposted. One of my videos had been reposted by a big channel called Student Problems, and it got like eighteen million views on Student Problems is uh, on on their page. Um, I didn't see a, a, a jot of that <laughs> revenue. That's beside the point. Cheers, Student Problems. Um, but I said to Zach, uh, "Oh yeah, I make videos as well. I've got like eighteen million views on my videos. Right, They're just purely just trying to like flex as yeah. much as I could. Like, <laughs> give me a job, give me a job." And he weirdly said, "Yeah, actually, well, we're filming something tomorrow. Do you want to come and help film?" So I helped film there and got to know him a little bit better. And over the course of like three or four months, we kind of did more work together. More, I was still working at the pub. And then he had this idea to, to kind of break me into London Fashion Week, dressed up as a model. Um, and we did that. And then that was just kind of like, boom, just went stratospheric. Yeah. So what was that like? <laughs> it was... Um, and, so, and if you can give some context for people who yeah, might not have seen yeah, that video. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. the video was, um, it was a basically a, a, a total ripoff of a video that Uber Butler had made about two years previously. He was a guy who worked, worked at Vice and he managed to, to fake a fashion brand into Fashion Week by getting people to talk about it. And so we had the idea of like, we're going to dress me up in ridiculous clothing. So we went to Primark, we bought like maternity trousers. <laughs> Zach had like some shoes that he'd been given when he'd spent a night in jail for breaking into the EMA. So I was wearing, I was wearing jail shoes, maternity trousers. Like I had a rug 
on my sofa that we pinned in weird places. We then got like plastic packaging that you get in like parcels, the big pillow ones and wrapped them around my neck, like some sort of like royal ruff. And we just went to, we were just went to fashion week and we got Coco, who was actually still working with me at the time, to like trigger the flash on, on her camera and just shout my name. She's like, Max, Max, I'm here, I'm here. And like immediately loads of photographers like ran over, started taking pictures, asking who I was. And then Zach pretended to be my manager. And it just kind of snowballs to the point where like we then sent those photos to the shows the next day being like, we've got this new hot model. He's making a real scene. Like you yeah. should get him into your shows. We got invited to shows. We got invited to after parties. Um, and we made this video documenting this process. Well, Zach did post it on his channel. And I remember talking to my dad before it went live saying, I'll be really happy if I get a thousand subscribers out of this video. Um, and my dad was like, just, just be like, just be careful. You don't know. It could, nothing could happen. It's okay. And almost immediately the video, when the video went out, it just exploded in a way that I haven't seen a video do like that. Yeah. Like, so it's like 30 million views or something now. Like, but it was, yeah, yeah. And, and so we, I went from 1800 subscribers to 80,000 subscribers in about four days. Mm, because he linked your channel. And because thing. yeah, my channel yeah. was linked and I was think I was a big part of the video. Yeah. Um, and so I guess people were like, oh yeah, like, check, this guy check, seems cool. Oh, yeah, check this guy out. And um, they went from thirty thousand subscribers to three hundred thousand subscribers in five days, which was just <laughs> yeah. mad. Um, and so what I quite what I quite like is Zach is still like probably one of my best mates, uh, and we are both really kind of proud of the fact that our career trajectory is both kind of like really <laughs> entwined in the sense that we both kind of blew up in the, with the same video at the same time. Um, and so from there, I realized, oh, okay, I've suddenly got this audience. Yeah. Um, and did I? And I didn't do anything different. I just went back to making the same street interviews, and like, oh great, I've got no, no, now more people are watching. But let's just do street interviews again. And that was really stupid. What was it about that video that you think hit it off so well? The storytelling is phenomenal from Zach. Like the edit that he made is absolutely incredible. Um, I think as well, it's it's the victim of the prank is the fashion industry mm. and that's a i think that's a communal shared <laughs> victim that people kind of don't feel too sorry about um a lot of the videos i do i'm always thinking okay is, is this punching up or is this punching down um and i think it's really important to think about that when you are doing the kind of content that i make because uh, otherwise it can very quickly feel quite vindictive or or, or just not very nice mm. um i don't and I, I genuinely don't know i don't know why that video has done so well um, it's just one that just and so how did it feel seeing the numbers climb on that video what was yours and like Zach's reaction were you like on the phone to you like, oh my god it, like... it was it was dangerously addictive yeah <laughs> it was like I remember like genuinely just like the cat the, the, the rat in the experiment where like clicking for <laughs> for more food like I was just refreshing YouTube studio every two minutes just watching the numbers um, and it was yeah it was incredibly exciting and awesome but then it fades so quickly like a week later yeah. and you're like okay now what now what yeah um, i'm just gonna make the same stuff that i have always done and then so like while while you were while you were there in in fashion week doing yeah. sort of holding like uh your uh, uh haughty pose and, and stuff yeah what was going through your mind like how, how was that for you i was terrified i was genuinely terrified because i grew like I was a very good student at school. I always did what I was told. Like I got my homework in on time. This idea of kind of 
breaking the narrative, breaking the mold and doing something a bit cheeky or naughty was something that was like completely alien to me. But I was determined to do it for that video because I knew the opportunity it would be, it would bring by being on Zach and Jay's channel. Mm. Um, so I was very, I was pushing myself outside of my comfort zone massively. Also, um, the, the the costume that we had made, we put together with safety pins and one of the safety pins had come undone whilst we were filming. And so I was generally had a safety pin in my back. So one Ooh. of them was like stuck in me. And so I was in quite a lot of pain. So the faces of just kind of like total disdain towards everyone was purely because I was in quite a lot of pain. Um, so I think I was just was like, let's just get this over and done with. It's nearly done. It's nearly over. Okay. Mm. Um, and it's, I've now come to, to view this, this feeling of like, I call it the 10 seconds of terror. And on the other side of 10 seconds of terror is, is something that's really exciting and really fun. Um, and something that you, you couldn't possibly imagine. Mm. So I always think if I'm ever, I'm doing less and less of these, of these videos where I'm like pushing myself to, to go into extreme circumstances. But if I have ever in that scenario, I just think it's okay. 10 seconds of terror, it will be done soon. Okay, so you've got, at this point, you've just exploded onto London Fashion Week. You've got your 80,000 subscribers. What, <laughs> what happens next? I've, um, so that was in March 2019. Yeah. Then for the next year until March 2020, I just genuinely just kept making more street smart videos. I just went out and just interviewing, again, people on nights out or people at events. I, I went to the World Wife Carrying Championships and interviewed people there. And I moved more into like conventions yeah. Um, that was my idea of like branching out and then COVID hit mm. and I was a mess because I was like, this, my whole job revolves around me interviewing people. So what was the channel monetized at that point? And the then, channel was monetized and that's at this how you were point. paying the bills? Or? Yeah, a little bit of both between yeah. like still working at the pub and, oh, right. and doing, but the channel was basically monetized at that point and Coco was still working with me. And like for free or for well, paid or no? like, like we were getting like we were sharing 50% of the channel each. Okay. Which I remember like looking back on it now, like seems mad, but we I just wanted to do this. So I wasn't really thinking about like the split of it and and how it was gonna work. Um and so it was definitely not big enough channel to be able to be like supporting two people, two people's wages. Um so COVID hit and I was like, what am I gonna do? Uh, I can't interview people. It's my whole bread and butter. And that's when I started to make different types of videos. So there was a there was a stock photo in my flat that I had never, it was in a frame that I'd been bought. I'd never bothered to change out the stock photo. And so I thought, and I'd never, never changed. So she'd become, this woman had become like part of my flat for two years. I'd been too lazy to change her out for yeah. a photo of my family or whatever. And so I then just, I remember sitting there like in lockdown board. And I was like, I wonder who she is. I'd love to talk to her. That'd be cool. So I then spent this series, this like three part series of like trying to find the woman from the stock photo. And initially I thought it was going to be like a one, I thought it was going to be a really easy video. I thought it was going to put it in, reverse image search it. She's going to be a popular model, reach out to her, see if I could talk to her. But it ended up being this like real goose chase. Like I was going, it, it took me six weeks to, to, by talking to experts and stock photography um, experts and, and like data analysts and, and people who worked in archives at Getty Images. And it's like, do you know who this person is? Do you know the style? And I eventually found this, I found this, this model. And that really, people really enjoyed that series. And I realized, okay, maybe I can do more storytelling bits mm. rather than just shoving a microphone in front of someone's face and trying to get them to say something silly. And that's where, so, so COVID was kind of a, a blessing and was the best thing that could have happened. But although I totally lost my mind and was worried that it was the end of all YouTube, 
it meant that I, it forced myself to 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 try a different angle of video making and yeah okay and so presumably you're living at home at this point working in the pub part time but mm. pubs weren't really a thing no i or... was i think i was furloughed uh, i can't remember had i left the pub at this point i think i'd left the pub just before covid yeah. i seem to remember i think i think i remember thinking okay i've just got this situation where i just i i can just about you know um make this make this work i mean i've also got to preface as well i I knew that I would be okay if I failed as well. I came from, I come from a background yeah. of, of immense privilege and I knew that it will be okay, but I know that I need to work yeah. hard at this. The insurance so, company is always there if you. The insurance, exactly. <laughs> I can go, I can go, <laughs> go do a few internships um, if, if, if needs be. Yeah. Um, so, but if anything, that, that kind of like, that was a real driving force to make <laughs> you like, really yeah. want to go and work, work, work harder for it. Um, okay. So you start this, this foray into the world of lens storytelling type videos. Mm. Um, so what happened next? What was that? I then just since COVID have just been steadily making more and more and they're going bigger and bigger. And I've realized that with YouTube, you're often referred to as the guy or girl that does blank. So if people would come say hello in the street and they're with their mate, it would be, oh, you're the guy that does X, Y, Z. And that would change like every three or four months. Oh, okay. So previously it was, oh, you're the guy that interviews posh people. Mm. And then... I ran for London mayor and it was like, oh, you're the guy that ran for London mayor. And it, it has, I realized it's, it's important that I think you, you change what that thing that people are referring to you as mm. not as frequently as possible, but it just showcases that you're still in people's consciousness. I mean, then, then there's a whole kind of deeper conversation about like relevancy and how important is relevancy. And yeah, blah, blah, blah. that was what I was going to ask you about. For, yeah. yeah. Um, but so for me, it was just, I kind of did more and more things and was going slightly they were kind of getting slightly closer to the bone in terms of like their feasibility or or how difficult they were or like for example running for london mayor yeah what was the deal with that like well, the how- bbc released a list of the candidates they thought they were going to run and at the bottom it said what you need to do in order to run and i and that included and only needed two things a ten thousand pound deposit that you got back if you got five percent of the vote which for context only three parties got back almost every single election. So Labour, Conservative and the Lib Dems. No, the Greens. I think I don't think the Lib Dem get back their, their oh, deposit. Wow, so okay. like it's incredibly <laughs> difficult to get your deposit back. Yeah. So you just need a £10,000 deposit and to get two signatures from each borough of registered voters. Okay. So you go to all th- so that's 66 signatures. So that's all you need. Mm. And I remember I put it into a, a mate's group chat and one of my friends just went, you won't run for London mayor. And I was like, maybe <laughs> I could, maybe, maybe I could do this. And then, so I then realized the feasibility of this thing, it was possible. I applied, I, I, I gave my, I had enough, just enough money. I thought if I make six or seven videos out of this, I'll probably make my money back. Um, so I applied and then I realized, oh, I need a story here. I need something that is entertaining because it's not going to be funny for the six weeks or seven weeks of the campaign if you're just just the YouTuber that's running for London Mayor. Um, and then I was given the gift of Lawrence Fox, um, who was another candidate who was running, who was also went to the same school as me, not the same time. Um, but he had never, no experience in politics, but he had five million pounds in backing. Oh, And um, I just thought, amazing what happens if you just have two two posh boys who have no like no history of politics if they just run against each other and he was running on a on a on a quite a controversial ticket um of of one of like um he was kind of going for a relatively like a a right wing uh left leaning kind of thing and i just thought what what was interesting is that 
I then had an opportunity. He was someone, he was an easy person to, 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 to make content about yeah. because he was very polemic. He was very kind of in the media a lot for doing crazy things or saying yeah. silly things. And so I thought, okay, if I run against him, it will be. There's, what do you, there's what do you mean by run against him? Like I just needed. You needed a baddie in the story. I needed yeah. a baddie in the story. Okay, fine. Um, and yeah. so it was just kind of like an opportunity to to do that, and so that's what I did. I I, I I challenged him to him to debates, and like for him, it wasn't a good look that I was constantly cropping up because he was like running on like a, a serious yeah. ticket. My number one, um, my number one policy point was don't vote for me. Um, and I was <laughs> because I wanted to engage. I also wanted to engage young people to vote, yeah. like not generally not for me, but for anybody. Yeah. Um, because I think we we hit we had a lot of like politicians saying it's very important to vote, guys. Always use your vote. But normally, if you're a young person, like this, that, so I don't yeah. care what you've got to say. Um, and so just having a horse in the race hopefully was going to galvanise more young people to vote. Um, and not for but not for me. And I released my manifesto, which included like things like. We have many parks in London, but no Jurassic parks. I'm going to change that. Um, I wanted to carpet the M25 to make it the smoothest road in the world. Um, so, like, I just came up with, I sat down with some mates, like, at the pub just to write my manifesto. And I made, like, a six, seven-part uh, series about that. What was really funny at one point is that Lawrence Fox, um, his campaign team were obviously paying for YouTube advertising. Mm. And the YouTube algorithm was just putting his YouTube advertising in front of my videos. So therefore he was inadvertently paying for my campaign. Yeah. So I then did a video where I said thank you to him and his top donor by dressing up in a delivery outfit, buying a column the Caterpillar and delivering a cake and a card to their offices and like essentially breaking in and pretending to be a delivery driver. And it just kind of like stirred this pot um, of, 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 the the political world i guess i wasn't doing anything particularly grand or or but it's just fun what was your this is going to sound somewhat pretentious but what was your creative process in making these seven videos what are you looking out for how do you how do you come up with the ideas I was just thumbnails, for like, what was the, yeah so i realized quite quickly so i don't think i've ever said this publicly but um i was always i always had a knack of finding out where lawrence fox was <laughs> And there was a reason for this. Um, so initially, uh, I got told by a friend of mine who's a journalist that yeah. he was going to be doing this big unveiling of a bus um, to launch his campaign. And so then I thought, okay, he's doing this big launch of a bus. What could I do? Okay, political buses have got kind of a history in our, in our political discourse. Why don't I wrap my car in the words, don't believe everything you read on a bus? and just tail him as he drives through London on his open top bus. And so I did this the first time round and it was, it was quite funny. And, um, he, Lawrence Fox was a bit annoyed at me, but I found out who, where he was because a friend of mine was a journalist. And then it was very clear that his party that he was running, I think they called the Reclaim Party. They were then only sending press releases to favorable media outlets that they trusted and they knew. Mm. And, but I still managed to find out where he was every single time because there was, there may or may not have been a mole who was working <laughs> in his party who didn't enjoy working in his party. So I thought, right, let's just send Max the location, the information and just do what you like. And so um, it was, the creative process was genuinely just trying to take advantage of, of opportunities that yeah. I saw. And so then I saw that he was, he was getting very upset. Lawrence Fox was getting very upset that Sadiq Khan wouldn't debate him because he said, we're both candidates in this race. 
like debate me Sadiq Khan and Sadiq Khan said no uh, I'm only debating proper candidates yeah so Lawrence Fox got very upset so that's ridiculous you need to debate me so I then said well right Lawrence we need to have a debate we're both candidates at that point we were both polling one percent in the polls so I was like Lawrence we need to have a debate come on let's do a debate and I got him on the phone to say yes let's have a debate and then he didn't turn up to the debate oh I, I hosted it outside of his uh, his office yep. um, to make it as easy for him and so I was just seeing I was just watching what the mainstream political kind of juggernauts were doing against each other and then just kind of doing the same thing with Lawrence Fox and so were you releasing a video sort of each week of the campaign i was trying to make them every week but it was quite difficult to 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 come up with um weekly uh weekly things about lawrence and then a lot of the time it was just about the what it's like running for a political position in this country and so i had a great time where the bbc and all the major um broadcasters they they their political ads are called every single candidate of course that do their due diligence and talk to them we were speaking to the head of bbc london the, the political journalist at bbc london she said so why do you think you'd make a good London mayor? And I said, I wouldn't. And it completely floored her. Like she was like, well, then why, like, why are you running? Yeah. It's like, I want to get more young people to vote. And she, she couldn't, like, I could, I could tell that it wasn't her favorite interview that she'd done that day um, because I was just being quite irritating to, to interview. And so a lot, of the, the, a lot of the process was just kind of like talking to people nice. and, and, and documenting that process and so to take the example of the driving behind the bus where don't believe everything you read on a bus yeah uh how, how does that then turn into a youtube video what is what is the process of doing a thing and then turning it into a video that does really well look like so i think that it's 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 all it's all story um it's you've got to have like set up your why at the very beginning um then you've got to set out the i think my audience really enjoys the the feeling that they're doing this whole thing with me so i can show the process of how i'm actually making the video in the video so i think once i i I normally start with the big ending so like i'll get the footage of me going behind the bus and me talking to lawrence fox and him getting annoyed and his his security team trying to that they tried to at one point i was reversing and they tried to stand in front of my car like at the back of my car to stop me from reversing i just like gently nudged them further and further back (laughs) um so i got that footage and then it's then it's like okay i put that in the timeline i said right i need the intro or the hook the hook i call the hook or the exposition hook then the exposition What's an exposition? Exposition, explaining a little bit more about uh, okay. why you're doing it, um, how you're going to do it. Um, and then it's normally the thing. And I just kind of, yeah, it normally takes about three or four days to edit a video if I know exactly what the beats are. Um, so normally the hook is, is, a, is, a, is a flashy 30 second, like best bits. Then it's me. We call it the kitchen shot. So um, I, I sit in my kitchen with my, my tripod and like, so I need to do this today. And this is going to involve doing this, this and this. And then it's like that process. And, and so you're you're sort of faking the footage as if you were doing it at the time? Or Some of it is. Yeah. Uh, like presumably when you wrap the car, you might as well film that process. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm, the, the, I'm, I'm filming that. Yeah, I'm filming that, the wrapping of the process, the, the, the wrapping of the car. But um, all of the, not all of, about 50% of the time when like I'm in the kitchen. Yeah talking to camera about half of it is the time when i was actually like thinking about it and yeah. i just rolled okay but often there are extra bits that i didn't explain well enough when i did it originally that i need to add yeah um to, to, to get a little bit more uh clarity in what i'm trying to say yeah. um so yeah it's just a lot so you're taking people through this process and at the end of it you get a video yeah um are you how, how are you thinking about like titles and thumbnails and all that jazz at that point i wasn't 
at that point I was classically doing the classic, like, okay, upload in 15 minutes, let's make a thumbnail. Yeah. Okay, done. Um, that has changed a lot recently um, since I've kind of built out a team and by a team, I said one person. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just me and, and my kind of producer editor, Aziz, who he's just an extra me basically. So we work on the video together. We actually, a lot of the time we end, we, we, we start watch, uh, we make the video at different ends and meet in the middle. Mm. So um, I'll normally start at the end. He starts at the beginning. We'll just, we'll just meet in the middle. Um, now we're super, super driven on like titles and thumbnails and understanding what works. And I, I very luckily am part of a, of a discord group of creators that every Thursday we meet and we have an hour and a half where we can talk, each brings like a topic to discuss. And that can be whether like roasting thumbnails or roasting titles or content ideas. Mm. And it's got me much better at understanding how YouTube works and understanding that you the algorithm is just people and that's what i find really fast that that changed my perspective massively when someone says oh the algorithm hates me or the video's been killed by the algorithm it's like no it's been killed because people aren't watching it or people don't want to watch it to the end so you just like oh this is not one that the audience is going to going to is going to like um and so yeah I, if we want to get very nerdy and talk about like ctr and avd and things like that then I do think about that a lot and I'm editing a lot of the time to music. So I'll put, I, I use classical music as kind of exclusive my USP and classical music is fantastic because it has a beginning, middle and end in the pieces. So if it's like a three, so let's say it's a 10 minute video, there's four, two and a half minute sections where I find pieces of music and they will come to their own natural crescendo and then we'll go to black screen and let's start the next chapter so we're thinking a lot of like okay let's keep the let, let's hold the hand of the, of the viewer all the way through this and try and yeah. tell the best story so covid happens you've got and, the, and then you get this zach and jay fashion week thing now you've got your eighty thousand subscribers yeah. what was the growth of the channel like and what were the sort of main things that really made things take off so i i went from so i got eighty thousand subscribers in uh, march 2019 mm. And until November 2021, so that is two and a half two years. years. Two, yeah, two and a yeah, bit years. Yeah, two and a half years. I went from eighty thousand subscribers to four hundred thousand subscribers. Right, in two and a half years. And in November 2021, I hired Aziz. And from November 2021 to now, which we are in September 2022, so ten months, we're on 1.4 million. There's so, a lot of exponential growth. Yeah, yeah, so it suddenly just went boom. And that's because I think I had just genuinely somebody to talk to um, <laughs> and somebody to just, is this a good idea? Um, somebody to edit the videos with, just generally just sharing the, the successes and the failures with somebody else was so much like more enjoyable than... Um, like anything I'd done previously yeah. and it showcased in the, in the, like in my social blade, if you don't know what social blade is, you can check your numbers and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Or your audience will definitely know what social blade is. Um, you could see like, the, <laughs> it's just like a massive spike almost like two weeks after I hired Aziz. Mm. And so that made me realize, okay, I can, I can make this thing that I'm doing, but with a, with a team, not necessarily a massive team, but like two or three people. I'm really interested in the idea of just having a small team um, who can just help me, create these these videos yeah i think it was it was exactly the same for me so i i first um got an editor uh christian who was our, our first i guess employee um to about two and a half years into my youtube journey so like late 2019 
And there was an immediate spike in everything on the channel because now all of a sudden I didn't have to do the editing, which meant I could spend more time making videos and we released courses and revenue skyrocketed and then we were able to build more of a team around it. Um, and I think that's like when you get to that point where you can then start working with someone, even if it's a part-time thing, even if you're just sort of outsourcing a bit of editing here and there to a friend, it's just completely changes the game. Mm, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm still very scared of hiring someone else as well because I'm not very good with like committing to be like, okay, this is a good idea. Even with like Aziz, not necessarily it was about Aziz, but I was trying to find an editor mm. for like nine months because I was like, this person needs to be like absolutely perfect. They need to be another version of me and know exactly my thought process. And then I realized that just comes by working together over long periods of time. Um, and so I am, I've got someone who's starting in two weeks time to, to help make videos for China. I do, I've got a lot of, I've got a, um, a platform on China that does quite well, um, an audience over there, which is, which is cool. Um, and so it's just kind of building yeah. a team and working together. So how, how do you, how do you make money these days? I make money from, uh, so ad revenue, which, um, it ve like since November, 2021 and the video is doing really well, um, ad revenue kind of changes quite a lot, but that's kind of like 10 to 20 grand a month um and but that almost all goes into my wage aziz's wage the, the and and also just the cost of the videos like the, as we're doing more and more um the videos are just getting really expensive mm. um like this i'm doing there's currently a treasure hunt on to find a hundred thousand dollar fish that was not <laughs> that was not cheap as you can imagine um so and then the other comes from brand deals um as well and th that rate changes and fluctuates as the videos do better because they look at your kind of average for your last five videos and then i do stand up as well so i've just done uh, i did a tour last year stand-up tour just been to the edinburgh fringe for a month i'm doing the london palladium in november um with my stand-up show and oh have yeah you got, have you got spare tickets for that yes yeah, so yeah oh. we still got about two 200 tickets left so oh so amazing please we should, please we should, come on down we should do a team trip to, yes please to do that'll be sick yeah, um, let's do that. That'll please, be fun. Please yeah. do come down. Um, and that's like that like stand up um, isn't something that that makes a huge amount of money. Something that I found really interestingly whilst actually doing it, because there are so many people that are taking like slices of the pie. Um, so yeah, mainly it comes from just brand deals and 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 ad revenue. Um, but I am I am now looking more to diversify by watching a lot of your stuff. Actually, and like yeah, th this needs to. Although my my whole niche is the silly guy doing silly things. That doesn't mean that I can't also make um, a business, and so hence the silly company is being born. The, it's, it's called the it's silly called company. The silly nice. company. I love it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's like the boring company. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, one thing I often worry about is what does my career look like when I'm forty or fifty? Am I still going to be a YouTuber giving productivity advice? Yeah. I imagine if I were you, I'd be even more worried. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what is that like for you? I'm, I'm not even worried about 45. I'm worried about the next six months. Like, um, I think that and this is why I ventured into different areas like stand up is because I want to be the most valuable entertainer that I can be. So I want to have a lot of strings to my bow with YouTube. Essentially, YouTube is what I do right now. It's just storytelling. And that I think will be, um, I think that's very valuable regardless what platform you're, you're on. Um, 
the best movies, best TV shows, best YouTube videos are purely just being able to tell a story really, really well. Yep. Um, so I think that I've got I've got value in in there. Um, stand up as well, being able to kind of talk to people on a large stage and in front of lots of people, I think is a, is a skill that I have. So I don't know whether I'll be making YouTube videos, and I don't know whether it's going to be large, pranky, stunty, stunty vids. Um, and but I hope that I will have some value within the entertainment world because of the experience I have with just telling stories. And I guess so. So is your model that? As long as you can make a living doing the thing that you love, which is entertaining people, then you're happy. You 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 aren't chasing big revenue numbers and all that shit. Or no, yes and no. Like I think that I, I realized very quickly when I hit a million subscribers that chasing my, like uh, quantitative goals is a very dangerous game because you hit those numbers if you ever do hit those numbers and you then be, do a big sigh and they're like, oh, okay, yeah. now what? I don't think I'm particularly money orientated. Um, I don't think that I'm like like saving like collecting the pennies just to make sure that that I I hit a, a certain revenue number. I think at the moment it's just being able to do things that I don't people don't think are possible. So I've got a few mad mad video ideas that I would just be happy if I could make them. Like I want to I want to water ski behind a cruise ship. Um, <laughs> and that. I was telling this I was telling this to uh, my my mechanic who was doing my MOT. And like, first of all, that was like blew his mind. Like the idea that you could be a YouTuber, but um, he was like, "Oh, mate, that's, that sounds amazing." Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And then there was a woman who was also getting her car serviced, and I told him about the idea to get a water ski behind a cruise ship. She was weirdly also called Karen. Um, she said, "Oh, you'll never do that. No, that's you can't do that." And just 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 this random woman telling me I can't do this has made me like. I will do this for the next five. I, I'm guaranteed. I'm sure I'm going to be able to water ski behind a cruise ship. Um, so I think for me at the moment, it's just being able to. I don't. Do you know what, Ali? I was listening to. Truthfully, I was listening to your um, uh, episode with KPM MQ Marquez. Yeah. <laughs> and before I got here, and, and you kind of you asked the same question, and I mm. remember thinking on the tube, I don't know what the answer is to that question. I, I generally don't know whether I'm doing this for monetary value, whether I'm doing this for kind of. Uh, quote unquote fame or, yeah. or acclaim um and i also don't know whether i'm making this is probably quite a a, a detrimental thing to be thinking about but i don't know whether when i'm making a video that i know is going to do really well or like is, is a big vid i don't know whether i'm excited because i'm really excited to make this video or i'm excited because i know it's going to do really well i still haven't come to terms with which one is 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 winning in that kind of angel versus devil on my shoulder oh mate so i was having a chat to a youtuber who i met over the weekend who has like 20 million subscribers and i asked this question of like how do you balance kind of education value of the video with the money with the, with the growth and he was like mate it, it changes depending on the day of the week and i was like oh mm. that's reassuring because mm. i definitely have that and even a guy with 20 million subscribers he was like yeah this is uh, it depends how i'm feeling depends on if i've had enough sleep depends on like sometimes yeah. i'm very money motivated sometimes very status motivated sometimes i just really want to make a really good video and that it changes every day and i, I would, that was so refreshing that is like, refreshing actually because i was just like i i feel like there, there surely there must be an answer to this and everyone i've asked is always like i mean uh, marquez's thing was very much like i just want to make a really good video yeah i was like that sounds simple enough i feel like my own motivations are a bit more dodgy where it's like to what extent do I want to be a uh, inspirational teacher to people because I want the status versus because I actually think it's a absolutely a, all of those things. No, I, I, <laughs> so, and, and, and yeah, I always, I always quite, I find it quite hard to to comprehend that people like when Marco says that, that that there are people who actually are that kind of like vindicating their own in their own self belief that that is all they're they're making the videos for is because they just want to make a good video. Yeah, I do sometimes go. I like going back and watching videos of mine from like two years ago of like experiences that I've had and be like, oh, that was that was a really fun time or I enjoyed that's that was a fun video. I liked watching that video. Um, 
And so I find myself sometimes creeping into a, a, into a world of like, I'm making this video because I know it's going to do really, really well. And how do you feel about the the process when, uh, so I, I generally find when I'm chasing numbers, it feels bad and I yes. get burnt out very easily. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And how, do you, how have you stopped chasing numbers, Ali? I do journaling sessions basically every month where I'm just like, right, where I, I have to reaffirm to myself that chasing numbers is not the thing that I actually want to do. Because it's just so easy. Like you see the numbers just there and just like, oh, fuck, hey, oh, this was an eight out of 10 video. Damn, view to subscriber ratio is going down. God, like Max's videos are doing really well. Yes, theory's doing well. And it's just the whole comparison trap. All yeah. of, and, and then it's like, okay, no, hang on. Let's take a step back, do a lot of journaling, write five pages about why I'm doing this thing and why this is good and why, why I don't need to worry about money and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I- Which lends at the conclusion of, make videos you want to make don't make videos to chase numbers no absolutely and yeah. i think that i'm now as of recording this podcast right now i'm probably in a bit of a vulnerable position because i've just done stand up for six weeks and i haven't posted on the channel for six weeks and so i've seen things are starting to dip again and i'm now like oh no uh this is the moment where it all goes bad and i post a video that, that people don't like or i'm doing it just for the sake of posting a video because i think it's going to do really really well um what i do really what i have learned that is really kind of refreshing is that the more that i make like fun videos or videos that i enjoy the more fun video ideas that i get in my mind and the more i make them so it's kind of like this this positive cycle and this negative cycle yeah um, so i don't i i haven't been able i don't have those processes i think in place because I, I think i'm probably arrogant enough in 27 and naive and, oh, it's fine I, I, when when i have kind of like a really low week then i'll just get through it'll be i'll get out the other side and fine, it'll be fine but that's probably a, a quite a quite a quite a bad <laughs> kind of thought process to be going into. I do I do I do therapy, yeah. which is, I was that was one of the first things that I bought with some YouTube money was like therapy, hmm. and is that's it been it is very useful. But then it all boils down to like ideas of like self esteem, yep. and that is much harder because you can talk about that. And I know I, I'm like the coach. I know all of the processes. I'm now going to therapy, knowing exactly the questions that my therapist is going to ask me. And I know the same response I'm going to get. And he, I know the, the bit where he's going to get me to cry. And yeah. then I tell him off because I'm like, you're just doing that because you want me to cry. Um, so I kind of got to a kind of a, a, an impasse where I know the processes. I know the things that make me feel bad when it comes to like negative thoughts when it comes to video making. Because it's all about self-esteem and like- What other things? Just wanting to be- like likes i think and wanting to be like have videos that do really well and like have big numbers and but the goalposts just move daily like i looked at my um we looked at aziz and i looked at our goals that we set at the beginning of 2022 and that was to hit 800,000 subscribers we were on 500,000 at that point and we're now on 1.4 million and we haven't taken a step back well i haven't taken a step back to think like okay it's fine we've more than double tripled our goal for this year I'm not thinking, can we hit 2 million by the end of the year? Mm. Uh, that's, you're, you're, those, those noises, Ali, is, is you're realizing like, this guy, needs, this guy needs some help. No, I'm, honestly, I'm thinking, mate, I know the feeling. Like, <laughs> I'm thinking that like, I'm, it's so nice hearing you speak about exactly the same thoughts that go through my mind. Um, I think I have been very uh, careful slash like to, 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 to try my very best not to set any kind of quantitative goal. Uh, at, at least not a goal that's outside of my control. So I might have a goal of like one one or two videos a week because that's in my control. But the, anything around like a subscriber count, view count, I found whenever I have a goal like that, it is net negative for me. And so how do I control the things I can control and only set goals that are like that? To which someone might be like, oh, but that's not ambitious. If you set a big, hairy, audacious goal, then you're more likely to hit it. And I'm like, yeah, probably. Um, but, uh, 
go back to the conversation you had with Marquez. You talked about like chasing goals. Like every every year he wants to go like hit his goals hard or chase his goals. That how do you feel about that kind of that idea of like it's so very goal oriented and goal driven because. When you reach goals, like I was talking to a YouTuber whose goal was to hit 10 million subscribers and he did it and he, his growth was enormous. And he was like, okay, well now what? I've done it. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't feel particularly different. I don't feel fantastic. And there's this like hedonic adaptation that I, I get, I'm really interested in because now it just looks like two YouTubers that people watch just kind of like, not complaining, but yeah. oh God, this is like, so hard. Life is so like, hard, isn't it? It was oh, like um, 1.4 million instead yeah. of 800,000. God. <laughs> and so then, then I catch myself and like, okay, don't be, don't be so, such an ungrateful idiot yeah. um, about the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's constantly trying to kind of... So just on that, on that note, uh, Darren Brown's book, Happy, is really good. Um, it's sort of stoicism and happiness and stuff. In it, he talks about the uh, kind of conundrum of being a celebrity in that there are all sorts of negatives associated with it, but you're never allowed to talk about it because you have to be just grateful. And, oh my God, like, thank you so much to the fans. It's uh, all, of, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the instant, like in a public forum, you talk about the negative, suddenly the public turns against you because mm-hmm. of like, of course, you've ended up in this privileged position, et cetera. Um, so I appreciate you actually <laughs> having the this courage to get, about this it. Like, get clicked up. We don't want to get cancelled. <laughs> it's going to be a, a, a problem. Yeah. The way that I've, I sort of think about it is um, I ask myself the question of like, you know, if I if I had a hundred million in the bank, how would I be spending my time? And the answer is, I'd be making videos about cool shit that I've learned, so I can teach it to other people and document the process. And I'm like, cool. Do I need a hundred million in the bank to do that? No, mm. <laughs> I, I could just do that. Yeah. And I'm like, why don't I just do that? I'm like, oh well, I want numbers to go up. I want to be more liked. I want to get more accolades. Uh, but it's like the, 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 there was another really great from uh, Alex Formosi, actually one of the jacked guys I was telling you about. He he had he, he had a really good quote. He said that um, he realized that when he was twenty, he wanted to be a millionaire. Yeah. But when he was a millionaire, he wanted to be twenty. Hmm. And so, why is he wasting all his time like grinding and not enjoying the process when we, he just want to go back? We're going to want to go back to the start when he gets to the destination. And so, I I, th- I do genuinely think think about that a lot. And I think I wrote it in my like journal yesterday or something. Um, just this idea of just making sure that whatever I'm doing, I am taking the time to enjoy the process. And not being too goal oriented, because I think being too goal oriented in a way takes your eye off of the actual process. Yes, I think just whilst you're talking that, I think my one, if I'm being totally truthful, it is all accolade driven. I think at the moment is that's that's what I want. I want to be able to say that I've done X, Y, Z, but I don't know who I'm like want to say it to. When there was an, uh, I did my tour, stand up tour. Um, someone said, "Oh, what do you want to do now?" I said, "I want to do the London Palladium because that." as a venue is one that I used to grow up watching like Jack D and, and uh, people like comedians like that doing their specials at the London Palladium. And so much so that I've rather kind of uh, arrogantly, is that the word? Um, I, I've asked the London Palladium who the youngest person who's ever done their own stand up special at the London Palladium. And I'm waiting to hear back mm. because there's something in me that wants me to be the youngest person ever to have done it, which is a really like, it's a really toxic way of thinking about things, I think. Um, but I think I am all still very much accolade driven at the moment, um, which I don't know whether that's a positive or a negative thing, but I think at the moment that's just how I am. So there's a, there's a book I'm reading at the moment called The Second Mountain. Okay. A, chap called, a chap called David Brooks. Um, it's 
thesis is basically that in life, there are two mountains. The first mountain is the mountain of success and status and happiness and being accolade driven and all that kind of stuff. And usually we're on that model when we're young, uh, that, that mountain. And then one of three things happens. Either you get to the summit and you realize, hang on, is this it? Or you get uh, knocked off the mountain because someone dies and you're like, shit. Or you get knocked off the mountain because of a health problem and you're like, oh my God, like I, I have a second chance at life. And in each of those three situations, you realize there is a second mountain. And that's the second mountain, which is more about service. It's more about joy instead of it being like, hey, I want to be cool and have freedom and stuff, which is very much what I optimize for the first mountain. Mm. That's more about I want to commit myself to a cause. I want to really invest in relationships. I want to invest in my local community. I want to have a family. And that is where you experience true joy as the second mountain, whereas the first mountain is more about like that short-term hedonism and status games that we all play. Um, do you think that's, a, do you think that's a, an age an age-based yeah. mountain yeah i think hiking situation <laughs> there there seems to definitely like from from people i know who have had lots of success in life definitely as they've gotten older especially as they've had kids it's like an immediate thing that takes them onto the second mountain um but what what i guess i was i was tr i was trying to get from the book and is like he, he he talks about if you if you recognize yourself as being on the first mountain which which i do mm. how do you then recognize that and actually shift to the second mountain knowing that like the pursuit of status and accolades and stuff is hollow and empty in, at the end of the day and just like basically everyone who's done it says it, it says that that's true and so it's like I, what i'm trying to do is figure out okay how can i short circuit my desire for status and accolades and stuff and just move to second mountain mode sooner rather than later so that i feel less kind of anxious around am i going to be relevant five years from now or is my youtube channel growing fast enough um there was, it out, but. there was a great, I mean, a slight tangent. Um, I think Colin and Samir told the story of Aziz, of Aziz Ansari meeting Frank Ocean at an awards ceremony. And Aziz Ansari went to Frank Ocean was like, man, how'd you do it? Like, you just come along, you just make awesome albums, and then you dip for like five years and we don't hear from you. And then you just come up and make another banger album. How'd you do it? And Frank Ocean just said, I just make less money. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah was like, oh my god, that's 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 so true. Like you're just you're doing it because you're not turning around and saying yes to a huge check that's that's coming from mm. from somebody else. And that really resonated. That that story really resonates with me. So like, yeah, actually, that is that is true. Like, how do you become somebody that is very enviable from everybody else? Well, you just make less money than everyone else. There's a there's a book called Finite and Infinite Games, um, which is sort of big in the sort of business tech bro scene. Um, but basically. The, it starts off with the idea that there are some games that are finite games that have an ending and there are some games that are infinite games where the object where the objective is to continue playing the game so something like minecraft is an infinite game there's no, there's no real point score like you just play because it bounce like you build a lego thing because it's fun but something like fortnite <laughs> is a very finite game where there's a scoreboard and you have to win win at the end of the thing yeah and it's kind of got me thinking that like in life, there are finite games. A game in the, uh, a, a, the game of I want to get the million subscriber plaque is a finite game. Like yeah. there is an ending, but the infinite game of like I'm doing the thing I love and making a living doing it. That, that that's the sort of thing that we both want to just actually be able to continue doing. Mm. And so, if you're at the point where you genuinely are playing your infinite game, which is you get to do the thing you love and and, and you get to make a living doing it, the only goal that makes it, that it then therefore makes sense to have is the goal of being able to continue doing the thing. And so the way I think about this is that like, if my goals are like revenue or like more big numbers and stuff, like I'm, I'm already doing the thing. I'm already like doing what I love and making money from it. 
So why don't I set my goals to be like, how do I make sure this is sustainable over a 30-year time horizon rather than potentially neglecting actually making decent content for the sake of over monetizing for the sake of a course or for the sake of a brand deal or short short-term money decisions tend to be finite gamey yeah i found and so, and whereas the more i'm actually doing the thing i love and producing content i'm proud of and don't really care about the money tends to be more infinite gamey there's the idea that as soon like people often find that let's say people have hobbies as soon as they start being paid for, to do their hobbies they, they start to not enjoy it yeah where do you stand on on that? If if your yeah. if your whole idea is to to make videos and enjoy yeah. making videos, Honestly, that's, a, that's a really good question. The way I the way I square that is by thinking, and I, I have this literally as like an affirmation that I've written in my freaking bullet journal because I was doubling with that the other day. What what does it say? Let me see if I can get it like word for word. Um, I don't care about numbers. I just do my thing, and my amazing team takes care of the rest. So it's like in my dream world, the only thing I'd be thinking about is how do I make how do i learn cool things and teach those to people and the fact that i now have a team means that they can worry about the monetization side of the equation <laughs> and so i'm thinking that if i can just separate these two things out like the creative from the commercial then and actually a lot of companies have a creative arm and a commercial arm because yeah. those two things don't really work nicely together and if i can do that in my life then that's that's a dream okay i need to i need to can i have your team please <laughs> <laughs> yes fantastic <laughs> I can definitely help you out yeah <laughs> angus has hopped on so many calls with other creative friends and stuff to talk talk through the process of how we're trying to get there um one of the things i have in my bucket list is stand-up comedy set ah yes what is what's the deal with stand-up comedy how does one get started if one is into, into interested in the thing that sounds like that sounds <laughs> like the beginning of a stand-up so what's the deal with stand-up comedy um good shout good shout it's very meta i'm not <laughs> yeah. sure how the, the pubs and clubs would enjoy that um stand-up comedy is uh an incredibly rewarding experience, but it's also one of the most terrifying experiences you can do. Um, and Rob Beckett, the comedian, uh, gave some incredible advice about how to get started in stand-up comedy. And he said, imagine you're starting a nine-to-five job in an office. You go in on the Monday on your first day, and by Friday, you kind of know what you're doing. You kind of know who the people are. You know what your job is. Stand-up comedy is exactly the same thing, but you're just going to work five minutes at a time. So it takes so much longer to be comfortable on stage, to know what you're doing, to know where, you're, where, where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. And I genuinely think that, I genuinely think that with stand-up comedy, it is, a, it is a case of just doing it. And it is, a, it is a world where it's the most you have to do it on the job job that you can possibly do i don't think yeah. you can do much planning or you can write jokes but like jokes that you write in your room will genuinely i found will have the opposite effect on stage jokes that you don't think are funny will be really funny on stage and jokes you think are really good are rubbish on stage yeah um and i was very lucky that i had a, a, a ready-made audience who who were kind of happy to be kind of guinea pigs for me for like six months but i was just doing loads of work in progress shows um uh, for in front of like 30 people i then very luckily found uh, a great team again um of producers and directors a director who works with joe lysett on all of his stuff as well as having done the dan and phil world tour like five or six years ago and so when i said i want to make an hour-long show he came on board and we wrote this show essentially together and he really supported me on that um and he's absolutely amazing because he understands youtube he understands what i was good at wants understands what my audience wants when they come to a live show but also merges that with stand-up and the way that the traditional comedy world works um so if you're going to do it i think just go to an open mic night where no one knows who you are 
for, and do five minutes and just stand on stage, it will be bad. Yeah. Like, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, people might not laugh, but as long as you've got that first one out the way early doors, then I think it's all okay. Um, and then someone also said to me, people, when they go to comedy, they want to feel like that they're being taken care of by the person on stage. So being a good stand-up comedian is just being able to be on stage and, and seem totally relaxed and everybody else seeing, feeling totally relaxed because they're like, oh, okay, this guy or gal knows what they're doing. That's fine. We can just enjoy the jokes. Whereas if you come on stage and almost immediately someone picks up the mic and they are messing around with the cable, the audience is immediately like, oh God, um, I really hope this is okay. Uh, and then as soon as you the audience are in that position, you've lost. Like they have already not turned against you, but they're not in a position where they're going to be comfortable enough to laugh. So Ali, the answer is do it. Just, just go and do it. And don't worry about how well it goes because it will go badly. And when it goes badly, it's a great story. Yeah. It's either a good time or it's a good story. Yeah, absolutely. Can we do a YouTube collab where you, where we, I, I do a stand up thingy and you're like my sure supporter yeah. or something yeah nice. absolutely that'd be super fun yeah and then part of the story can be this conversation we've just had yeah. i'm like and so I've, can... I've been interested in stand up comedy for a while and then you came with a podcast six months ago yeah. we had this conversation <laughs> and i was like ali you've just got to do it yeah <laughs> it's like yeah. act two or whatever the absolutely. however you do storytelling and content yeah. which i've never done before but we'll give it a go um that, that that could be fun how how does one become funny that's a very good question um Comedy, I think there's a, there's a, there's a real structure to comedy. Um, so comedy is basic. Comedy is specificity. So um, you're, you're, you're so I had a joke where I would go through my old notes on my phone and I found that um, on my phone, I'd written on Christmas day, six years ago, weirdly, uh, Girls Aloud Jump, the song Jump by Girls Aloud. I'd just written on a note. I had no idea why I'd written it. So I've had a bit in my show about um when we write weird notes on our phone. And I was, I realized when I was writing that um, the joke initially was something like um, I wrote this and my family had tasked me with putting together a Christmas playlist. Right? And I wrote girls like joke. My director said, no, make it really specific. Said uncle John tasked me with, tasked me with putting together a Christmas playlist. And so I chose girls allowed jump. So that's much more, that's much funnier Whereas the concept of it isn't inherently that funny, but the specificity of Uncle John makes it funnier. So comedy is specificity I've found. Um, and I think that it's it's just, I, I don't really know. Um, we think a lot about, um, it's also contradictions. So this is what we're thinking when Aziz and I think about like titles, YouTube titles and concepts. It's taking something that everybody knows and doing the weirdest thing with it. So I got roadkill. What's the weirdest thing you can do to roadkill? serve it to michelin star chefs as is there any other any other concept like ideas video ideas we've had that's like really contradictory um yeah, well, yeah i mean most we always talk about that now i think exactly we're oh, richest man in the world oh, yeah. for seven minutes mm. um, yeah, that was a great example of how like the richest man in the world idea was around for a long time we basically were making the video but then just adding that for seven minutes and trying to work that into the video what why would that be yeah um made it because it just makes it way more intriguing because if you just I began rich around the world people think kind of like well it's probably not going to be real or, or like some joke thing but for seven minutes it's like okay so what loophole do we find here well, why only seven minutes like, yeah. that that's what makes it great oh yeah I mean like oh yeah and the, the other one was I caught fish and chips uh, from the world's most polluted river 
So I ate fish and chips from the Thames. So that's a lot of like the, the comedy of the channel comes from just contradictions. So we're just constantly looking at like, okay, cameras, what's the weirdest thing you could do with a camera? Uh, could you make a camera out of like a potato or, um, and I think that's just, just, that's just content in general. I think on YouTube, it's like you, a lot of the time I look at my homepage and I realize, oh, it's just, yeah. just kind of contradictions. I just saw a really good one, adult actors. Oh Yeah. So we did a video with adult actors, um, uh, porn stars, if you will, and we got them to just act in a short film. <laughs> so I, I hired porn stars to act in my short film, and so like that yeah. was because that, and it was great. They were yeah. they were great actors, and and we had a great time, and it was it was a fun video to shoot. That how how do you hire a porn star? That was hard. That <laughs> genuinely that was the hardest part of that video was trying to just trying to get in contact with like porn agents because I don't know any, uh, <laughs> uh, not in my, not in my current days. Um, and so I, the best way was, was generally was Instagram shout outs. That's where I find a lot of like my videos happen because yeah. someone on Instagram knows someone. So mm. it was, a, it was a difficult day when I was like, hi, does anyone know any <laughs> porn stars? Genuinely just like for a, for a video, not that kind of video, but does anyone know any porn stars? And we got, yeah, uh, some, some really, really cool people who came down and, and were, were great actors. I think the the specificity point is really like our the th thinking back to the start of our conversation when you did your uh, impromptu bit about Greg mm. and like the accent and the 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 catch of <laughs> yeah catch of saying <laughs> catch of saying down the front it's just the, the 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 specificity is what makes that story like really funny yeah if um, you just talked about guy coming in he'd spilt something on his on his shirt that's yeah. not funny but it's yeah the more specific I think often is yeah. is, is the funnier what about accents. Um, what about them? So I, I another thing I have in my bucket list is learn how to do ac cool accents. Okay. And it's a thing that, so my, my singing teacher is like a professional Broadway actor or stuff and has actually studied accents and yeah. like can do like 50 of them with like actual like notation and, and shit. Um, you've busted out like four or five so far. Like, is that just a thing that came naturally to you? How do you, how do you go about? Being yeah, able to do like impressions and stuff. Accents, I can't give much more kind of insight yeah. <laughs> other than just like I've just been doing them for a long, long time and just been like imitating people that I've seen on the telly ever since I was a kid. Um, and I just, yeah, I really enjoy doing accents. And there are some that I can do, some that I can't do. Um, like some I can do well, some I can do really, really badly. What are your top three favorite ones? My favorite one, South African, I like doing. Um, I like doing. What else do I like doing? I like doing really pot, like really posh is really fun because I get to in my in my kind of my, my life I have yeah. met a lot of these people. And they <laughs> they just you know they just don't their teeth just do not touch at all. They they, they really just chat like this and it's it's fantastic, you know, absolutely fantastic, wonderful to be here with Ali. Um, wonderful guy actually you must much watch, watch his content that just slightly goes into Boris so well yeah, yeah. fantastic um, so I, I, like, I like South African I like um, I like posh um, and just American is fun because American is just like quite difficult to do because mm. you just very easily just go into Southern and Texan which becomes a stereotype but I, I've just been doing them my, my whole life really nice um, how does stand up compare to the like doing stuff on on video like is it very it's different? It's completely it? different. Yeah. yeah, it's completely different because it's you get that immediate feedback, number one, but also the kind of con the way you present the content has to be completely different. So I've tried in the past like putting on like two or three minute videos during my stand up set, and it just feels like 
you're putting my director calls it you're putting on videos for the kids so it's like you're yeah. <laughs> like you're in, in class you're like and now here we're going to watch this yeah. uh, this video so they've got to be really short sharp and just almost responding to whatever the joke was or whatever you've just said on stage right. um so it is very different you've got to th you're thinking much more about the idea of liveness okay. than you are uh, when you then you definitely don't think about that with youtube but comedy is at its best when the audience feels like it's the first time the comedian has ever said that and mm. so there are lots of times when you have audience interaction that's why audience interaction works so well is because the audience feels like oh this comedian is being really funny in the moment yeah. and is doing something that hasn't been rehearsed and hasn't been planned and there are there are different tactics that you can use that you can almost fake that or not fake that or, or facilitate that feeling um so there's some audience interaction work that i do where i know there's only a very finite number of answers in which the question i'm asking the audience member can give me back okay. and so i've got in the chamber three or four different responses that yeah. i know work and know are funny so what's an example <laughs> um oh god you're putting me on the spot here um i'm just trying to think back to the show okay right yeah this is going to slightly ruin the the fact if you come to the uh, the Palladium show, but whatever. Um, there's a bit in the show where I try and play a game of uh, find a posh person in the audience, yep. and I call it guess whom. Um, nice. like the board game. So what I do is I put, ask everyone to put their hands up in the air, yeah. and um, I say, right, keep your hands up in the air if you've ever referred to your parents as mummy or daddy. Right? <laughs> okay. So you keep everyone has their hands in the air. Some people like drop their hands, and then I will pretend on stage that there are more hands up on the right than on the left so i'll say <laughs> oh there are seemingly more posh people on the right than on the left i know that a little bit like our, uh, our political climate and that feels very live even though that's a joke that i've written yeah. previously um it always goes down really well because <laughs> as a joke it's not that funny but yeah. it's just it feels like it's the first time i've ever said it nice. so if you come to the podium <laughs> show keep your mouth shut um so yeah what's it like working with a director to write and produce like a whole like hour-long show like what how's that presumably it's very different to a five minute seven minute routine yeah you are looking at the flow of a show so you want to come on stage and you want to be high energy at the beginning and you want to get into things immediately so the audience feel comfortable and they're like okay this guy's know what he's doing but then over time you can't have you can't sustain that energy the whole hour because your audience gets exhausted so you've got to give them periods where they can relax yeah. and they can slightly almost turn off a little bit from what you're saying because I think the difficulty with comedy with hour-long comedy is you're listening to someone talk for an hour which is an incredibly difficult thing to do to concentrate for an hour and if it's like a certain type of comedian who are very very clever comedy you've got to be on the whole time as an audience member to, to realize okay this is going on so we do have we, we make the sections very clear so the audience knows, okay, I'm in this bit for seven minutes or five minutes. I can yeah. see the ending for this section. That helps a lot. Um, also giving time to put on put on a, sh a TV show for the kids, like just like having, letting them have a reset where they can watch something rather than having to listen to me all the time. So it, a lot of the time it's just form formatting. And then it's just about writing those individual elements and and thinking about what works and what doesn't but mainly it's about the structure of a show and so a lot of the time when we're doing previews we're like swapping and changing it's like well, what if we put that bit after this bit but that needs a connecting bit yeah but then that affects a callback that we've got later on the show so it's it's very bitty okay and wh what are the economics of being a stand-up comedian right is it a reasonable path to make a living for a normal person <laughs> i don't think it is no 
Um, so you have got, you're going to have your producer. So, so these are the various people that, that will take a cut. So you've got producers who will take 125 to 20% of uh, the show's takings. You've got a agent who will take 10 to 12 and 10 to 15% of the takings. Um, so already you've lost about 25% of, of, of your earnings there. The venue then takes normally, it depends, sometimes they do like a flat fee, but most of the time it's like a percentage. So they're taking 30 to 40%. Oh, wow. um, so before you even turn the microphone on, you're losing 60% to like costs. Mm. Um, and then you've got the costs of like a director if you've if you've kind of had the, the money to do that you've got pr that that will kind of like hopefully get people to to go to your show i have just done a month at the edinburgh fringe festival um in a venue that's about 75 seats um, so it was a small venue and I, I chose it to be a relatively small venue i sold every seat out in in that venue over the month and i oh. think we which was wow. great and but because the idea was that we wanted to make it a real scarcity of the tickets yeah. um so we sold every ticket um for, for the run which is about two thousand tickets over mm. 30 days and i think i took home about two and a half thousand pounds and oh wow over the over the month and that like it's spent oh we've, we've spent like <laughs> six months writing the show yeah um and so i think i mean fringe is is, is a bad example because no one makes any money at the fringe anyway the fringe and that was one of the big issues this year is because it's getting so incredibly expensive yeah. um that it's so difficult for any new wait new what do you mean it's getting expensive accommodation is ludicrously expensive it's kind of a thousand fifteen hundred pounds to stay in edinburgh for the month in like a tiny box room um just the whole creation process of bringing your shirts to the fringe is so expensive okay. um so you're going to lose a lot of money um so my, my point is you don't really start making lots amounts of like large amounts of money until you're consistently doing four five hundred seats of venues for the for the for the for the year okay um and I think that's that's going to be a problem because going going forward, um, also, also the main the shows that were selling out at the Edinburgh Fringe this year were all because they had platforms on social media, mm. um, all because they were really big on Twitter, or yeah. they had a video that went viral recently, or they were YouTube uh, YouTube audiences. Um, and I think for the comedy industry, that's something that's going to be quite. I would be relatively worried if you're a comedian and you're not kind of engaging in somewhat in the social media side of things i can understand why you wouldn't be because it's like well hold on no i got into stand-up comedy because i want to be a stand-up comedian i don't what's this whole stuff now i need to be a content creator and do like silly tiktok dancers there's a real misconception about what it means to be a, a tiktok creator or, yeah. or an online creator um but yeah I, it, the big comedians in the uk like obviously taking away your gervaises and your your yeah your joe lysets they're probably making yeah. good money but Everybody else is, is I don't think you're making huge, definitely not making generational uh, money to, yeah. to kind of retire <laughs> off. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, so I've got a friend who is uh, a musician and um, we just recently got a record deal a couple of years ago and he's just like, oh my God, they keep on saying I have to go on TikTok and do silly dances. Mm. And he's just like, I got into this to make music and now I'm having to build a social media following because that's apparently where songs go viral yeah. and stuff. And even in, even in the book publishing industry. There's a time every every June or July where the publishers will start emailing everyone who's got any kind of audience because they know that the way to guarantee book sales is to give a book deal to someone with an audience. Um, and a lot of genuine writers are just like, I, I, I don't have a platform. I, I need yeah. to build my email list. I know I should be on Twitter and Instagram and all those things. And I just can't be asked because it's not what I signed up to do. Yeah. And so it's just weird, weird incentives where a lot of the social media famous people are getting book deals and stuff where now writing a book is now 
anyone with any kind of audience can just publish a book with yep. Penguin or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas before, it used to be more of a prestige. A prestige You've published some a book? Uh, working on it. Working yeah. on First it. draft is done. Now we're in the editing stage. Okay. Because I'd be interested again to know what the what the what the financials of of that are like. Oh. Because because I know yeah. you, with with it, how it goes, you you get given an advance when you sign the, the deal. Is yes. that where most of the money comes from? And then it doesn't actually matter how many it sells, or do you get a percentage of how many it sells? Yeah. So you get an advance, and that's usually sort of le- so. Um, most advances for first time time authors, maybe they'll give you like ten grand in in the UK. In the US, it's more like sort of in the tens of thousands, two hundreds of thousands. If again, if you have an audience, um, so let's say you get a twenty thousand pound advance, you'll get twenty five percent of it, like on signing, twenty five percent of it when you hand in the manuscript, twenty five percent of it when the hardback's published, and the other twenty five when the paperback's published. So across a four year period, you'll get this twenty thousand pounds over a four year period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an advance, which means you have to pay it off. Uh, and you pay it off from book royalties. And so with the advance, they'll say that, okay, so it'll, it's a £20,000 advance and it will give you 7.5% of the royalties um, up until you sell X tens of thousands of copies and then 10% and then 12.5% and then 15% is like, whoa, that's really a high royalty figure. So if you sell a book for 15 quid, the author will be making about a quid from it-ish if they're lucky. And for the first 20,000 of those, that pays off the advance. And then subsequently, so you just, just take a loan. You're in debt. You're in debt. Uh, I mean, if you if the book doesn't earn out in its uh, earn out in its advance, which the vast majority of books don't, then you don't have to pay anything because I mean, the publisher has taken that risk. I see. And so once your book has earned out its advance, at that point, you're making a pound every sale. And if you're James Clear and you've sold 12 million copies, now you're winning. Yeah. Uh, if you're basically everyone else <laughs> and you've sold. Like, oh, the, the, there was a stat that was going viral on Twitter because there was some book fair recently where like 98% of books don't even sell more than like 20 copies. So like the publishing industry is losing so much money, but it's the Atomic Habits, it's the Harry Potters, it's the these huge books that are funding the whole thing for the other <laughs> the other minnows that don't make any money at all. Yeah, we we I did a video where I, I got a book to be number one on Amazon bestseller in the poetry oh, yeah. section. Yeah, I watched that. Okay. And um <laughs> Yeah. I, it's it's slightly jaded my my like I saw I think it was Piers Morgan said like did a congratulate tweet for himself that his book was the top of the Amazon bestselling list and I just kind of sat there thinking you, you need about twenty five copies to to get to get up there um but it's do you think that's detrimental to the to the publishing industry in 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 the whole or do you think like the way I, that yeah I just think the 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 publishing industry from from people I know who are in it are just like yeah it's it's kind of dying there's no need for that gatekeeper anymore. Like back in the day where the only way to get your ideas out would, would be via television or via publishing press. Mm. These days, anyone can publish anything on Amazon and it's trivial. And so like, what is the point of a publisher? They say they're going to they're market the book and stuff, but they don't really. And they go after people with audiences, knowing that the audiences can sell the tick. Yeah. It's a weird, weird kind of, kind of system um, where, yeah, the margins are so low uh, that. <laughs> so within, yeah. I mean, it's probably, I, I felt very like a, like an like an alien um, when I was in Edinburgh Fringe because I was somebody who had an audience and I was selling tickets and it was my first Edinburgh Fringe and I've done comedy yeah. for eighteen months and so all of the the comedy kind of reviewers that that, that com- comedians comedians reviewers came in I got absolutely slated like I was <laughs> getting horrific reviews yeah. um, and is that the same with in the book world that people with with audiences are kind of like their books are like looked down on by traditional yes very much big so. big publishing yeah so there's a there's a lot of sort of insider baseball type stuff around the new york times bestseller list ah, yes. and how if you are an academic uh then 
you don't need to sell as many copies to get on the bestseller list as if you are a YouTuber, for example, where there's yes. like, oh, screw that, you know, and you have to really like sell loads of copies for them to not not even be able to justify not having you on the bestseller yeah. list. Similarly, the way they do it is like, it's not, it's 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 like this weird secret formula, um, kind of which is closely guarded, like the Coca-Cola recipe of there are certain Walmarts in random places of America where they sample those to see how many people in Texas in this random Walmart in this random town bought your book in real life mm. because the people with online audiences drive everyone to the Amazon pre-order page. And so that's an unfair advantage that people like you and me would have if we were to write a book. But a quote normal author, <laughs> they would weight the Walmart Texan sale way, way higher than the Amazon one. And yeah. so there's all this stuff around how do you actually get on the bestseller list beyond actually selling books because that's not really how it works mm. but there's a lot of random faffery around that with similarly with music publishing there's all sorts of stuff that is a bit weird it sounds like comedy is similar yeah. in that it's theme. i think it's yeah. almost exactly the same and yeah. i was talking to a few people who have been nominated for the award up in edinburgh and like that's that's the one of the most it's probably the most um coveted award in comedy or, or, or thing in comedy and, and a lot of those people on that list are like oh i'm i'm probably gonna have to quit comedy in the next like year and a half because i just can't afford to keep doing this it's just too yeah it's too expensive so what do you like I, I i guess coming full circle to the career question that we talked mm. about at the start like what do you see your career as being over the next like <laughs> month to years i really don't know i think my, my my next goal is to to build build a team and that's not necessarily a huge team but a team that i'm really proud of and really like just i could trust implicitly um and that's hard that's really hard to do um I think I'd still like to be telling stories. I think I'd still like to be entertaining people. I'd still like to be doing silly things. Because I think there is a gap in the market for just doing things that are inherently silly and fun for the sake of it. And yeah. that's one of my biggest bugbears with TV. I've had a few kind of conversations with big producers and I'll pitch them some ideas. They're like, yeah, we like it, but but what's the why? Why are you doing this? Why? Why? What's the deeper meaning here? And I often say just there isn't one. It's just because it's something that is just inherently silly and fun. It's like, no, there needs to be a why here. And so I really like this I, this, this, this USB of like just doing something silly for the sake of being silly. As long as no one's getting hurt and it's a bit of fun, I think there is a, there is a place for that. So I'm, I think I'm going to try and kind of market myself as, as the US, as the, as the silly guy. The silly guy. The silly guy. The posh silly guy? Posh silly guy, yeah. I mean, that's probably what will be said behind my back. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the posh silly guy. Nice. But I'd love to ask you about um, burnout. A lot of creators talk about kind of burnout. Um, what's been your relationship with burnout? Uh, I have burnt out a few times. Um, I think during lockdown was a was 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 a bad like it it showed it reared its ugly head physically. Like I felt I was I was I was inherently just very depressed, and I don't think I do enough to combat burnouts. Again, it's like, it's okay. Like, I know, I know I shouldn't do this because I'll probably get burnt out, but it's fine. I'll do it on this occasion because when I get burnt out, that's fine. It'll be over in two weeks and then I'll be, it'll be okay again. So I would love to say that I sit here and get up early and journal and I go for a run every morning to clear my head before I have my iced latte and, you know, set, set the day straight. But that's not true. That is uh, purely because I've listened to too many podcasts and I know what's the right thing to say is. Um, so I think that. I don't have any good structures to avoid burnout. Um, I have been burnt out in the past. 
and I probably am going to be burnt out a few more times in the future. But I'm still, I think I'm too focused on that first mountain analogy that we're looking at. I'm too focused on the summit of that first mountain. And I've got blisters all over my feet, but my, my uh, eye shoes are, are, are determined to get to the top. Um, which again, is probably a very worrying thing to say. And I'll probably look back on this this interview in like three years time and just be like, you were an absolute idiot. That's a sign of growth. Um, so it's good. <laughs> but I am constantly looking for, I think I just don't prioritize the, the, the things that will stop burnout. Um, Why? Because I don't think that I don't I don't value them and I don't value them highly enough. I don't think that they have. I can't see the objective value of of them. So therefore, mm. I don't think that they are worth the time, which okay, I know yeah. is. And then, but then the vague things like taking time off. Yeah. I then just I I took I went on holidays for two weeks after I did the Edinburgh Fringe run. I was like, right, let's take some time off for two weeks. And I was just thinking about the channel the whole time. I was like, well, what am I like? This is this is rubbish. Like, I've gone away to like have some time away but yep. no i'm not enjoying this time away i was most happiest when i was doing the fringe actually because i was like i wasn't thinking about the channel i was just thinking about every day i need to do my show and that's it I'm, I, and i could i could compartmentalize things a little bit better yeah yeah i find the whole sort of taking time off thing is also, also massively overrated um in that whenever i take time off i'm like great the calendar's empty now i can write the book properly or now i can like plan out this video that i've had in my mind for ages and I haven't had time to 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 think about um the way I, I do I do holidays is usually trying to trying to do something that looks like work for at least a few hours because then it gets it out of my system and then I can enjoy the sunset cruise or the hike or the whatever yeah. rather than feeling like mm. I haven't thought about a video for a while. Any any advice you'd give to aspiring creators? Yes, get good at making videos, mm. which is that you think is like be good at it, yeah. um, or at least be good at what you know you can be good at. Um, because I think often people are so determined to find hacks and cheats with YouTube and just any job, but ultimately it comes down with, can you provide value through a video to somebody? Are you making them laugh? Are you educating them? Are you entertaining them? Mm -hmm. If you're answering to that question, yes, then great. And the best way to do that is by making videos. Um, someone will say, oh, I've made three videos and can you, what do you think? What do you, can you give me some advice about what I should do next? I always say, okay, just make 50, <laughs> make 50. And then decide whether you still want to do this. And if you, nothing's working after 50 and you're not seeing any growth at all, then that's a clear sign that maybe you shouldn't be doing this niche. Maybe you should be going somewhere else. I don't agree that YouTube is too saturated and that you can't start a YouTube career now. That's absolute rubbish. I think anybody can still, you can, there are, there are people now with 10 subscribers who will have 10 million subscribers in three years time. That's definitely true. Whether you do that through shorts, whether you do that through long form is a different conversation. Um, and depending on the quality of the audience that you want to have. Mm. Um, yeah, don't get me, don't get yeah, me started well, on that. I'll, <laughs> sounds I'll, like a rabbit hole. Yeah, I'll start to, I'll start to get quite... Um, yeah, we've got a, a, a framework that we have for our YouTube course stuff, which is level one is get going. Level mm. two is get good. Level three is get smart. Yeah. And get smart is where you worry about your niche and stuff. Yeah. And people are often like way too like, oh my God, is this the right? Like, how am I going to stand? It's like, look, just get good at making a video. Yeah. Once you once you can do that once a week, then or, or whatever consistency you want, at that point, let's talk about your niche and, and retention tactics and, and all of that crap that what thumbnail you're yeah. going to use. <laughs> um, so no, I completely, I would completely agree with that, uh, that methodology. So excellent. 
We've got the have fun with stamp the course, of approval. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.